Well, just as we sang uh, in that last psalm, the Lord is good and His faithfulness, faithfulness does endure from generation to generation. And there's no greater evidence of this than Him sending His own Son into the world that we might live through Him and then Him giving to us His holy word that we might be acquainted and know His will. So with that, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 to 6 today, but we'll focus just on verse 1. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. There the word of Christ says this. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all of his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, today, Lord, thanking you that, Lord, we have, by your grace and by your will, Lord, become partakers of a heavenly calling. And Lord, we know that this right and privilege has been granted to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Only through his person and his work can we who were your enemies be reconciled to you. Only through the death of your Son. So, Father, I pray today that we would consider who Christ is. Lord, who he is in himself and, Lord, what it is that he's done for us. Lord, that we might cling and hold fast to our head and that we would never be tempted to forsake Christ, but rather that we would hold fast to him and that we would dwell and think about who he is and what he has done. Lord, that you might build us up in our faith and that we might have our minds set on things that are heavenly, where Christ is, they are seated at your right hand. So, Lord, teach us today. Lord, instruct us in your will. And, Lord, we pray that we would come to know you, the only true God, through Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we again come to chapter 3 of Hebrews today. And in this chapter, the apostle is calling his hearers to consider diligently what he has said concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? He's not simply speaking for his own benefit, just so he can have something to say, just so that he might gain uh, a following or, or be able to uh, promote himself. But rather, what he is saying is for the benefit of the church. It is so that we might consider these things, put them into practice, and persevere in the faith and not forsake Jesus Christ, right? We must consider who Christ is. And in chapter 1, we remember that the apostle extolled the greatness of Jesus Christ. He focused upon his exalted state so that we might see his glory and not take offense at Christ. He showed us in chapter 1 that Jesus is the heir of all things. He is the one through whom the world was made. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. He is the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. He is the one who is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he is the one who is made far superior to the angels because he has inherited a name more excellent than they have. 
He then showed many proofs from Scripture to show the exalted state of Jesus Christ in contrast to the angels. Then in chapter 2, the apostle turned his attention to the humiliation of Jesus Christ. Why it was necessary for the sake of the church that he would be made a little lower than the angels for a little while so that he might become like them in all things and taste death for them that it was necessary for Jesus to be subjugated to our weaknesses, to our infirmities, in order to redeem us from our sin. It was necessary for our salvation. Because the children share in flesh and blood, these are the ones that he came to redeem. Therefore, he had to share in flesh and blood with them. He had to become like them in all things so that he might taste death for us, so that he might deliver us from the power of the devil so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest for us in the things pertaining to God, so that he might make propitiation for our sins. He had to suffer and die in order to redeem his people from their sins. Now, both of these things are true. We must believe and confess. In order to be saved, we must believe in the Christ who suffered, in the Christ who was humbled, in the Christ who died on the cross for our sins. And we must believe in the exalted Christ, who was raised for our justification, who has been highly exalted, who has a name above every name, who is at God's right hand, who is the Son of God. We must believe in the true person of Jesus Christ, as both the Son of Man and as both the Son of God, as both the suffering servant and as the exalted Lord. We must have a true, proper understanding of Christ in order to be saved by his work. And if we do not understand the person of Christ, then we cannot benefit from his work. And this is what the apostle has been unfolding for us up to this point in Hebrews. Now in chapter 3, he places before us the importance of considering who Christ is. That these things that God has done for his people in his church could only come about through this one person, not through anyone else. He is the only way that we can be saved. The only way that we can be redeemed and reconciled is through Jesus Christ. We must consider who he is so that we do not turn away from Christ. For what other person in the history of the world can fulfill the offices of Jesus Christ? Who else is qualified to serve as a mediator between God and man? Who else is qualified to be a high priest over the household of God? Who else can it be said that he is the apostle of God? That he is the sacrifice for sins? That he is the true temple of the Lord? Only these can be fulfilled in Christ. So we better consider who he is and not be easily shaken from holding fast to him. Because if we turn away from Christ, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. We will die in our sins and we will perish for all eternity. So we must hold fast to him, even if it means losing our life. That's what he's telling them here. That's what he is encouraging them to do because they are being tempted to turn away from Christ because of suffering and persecution. But they have not adequately considered who he is. And this is what he sets before them and what he sets before us as well. So let's turn again to Hebrews chapter 3. We'll be in verse 1. We're not... Because there's just so much to say here. There's so much to say, and that's just fine, right? It will take as long as it takes. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. 
says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Here he begins with the word therefore. And whenever there is a therefore, it is alerting us of something that came before, of something that has been said and that we need to make application. We need to consider these things. So in light of what he has said concerning the Son of God, concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? we must consider what has been said about him and then make a proper and fitting response to what has been declared to us. All of the truths that have been told concerning Jesus Christ. How it is that he is so excellent and highly exalted above all things. How it is that he humbled himself for a little while for the benefit and blessing of his people. How can we not consider these things? How can we not take time to meditate upon them? To think seriously about Jesus Christ. Both who he is in and of himself and what he is to us. The purpose here is to press upon our minds the necessity of persevering in the faith, of clinging to the truths of the gospel. It is not enough for us to merely hear the word, but we must do it. We must apply it. We must practice it. We must obey the word of God. All of the doctrines of the gospel, especially those relating to the person and work of Christ, these are not given to us merely for us to know them in some intellectual fashion. But they are given to us that they might be obeyed, that they might be practiced, that they might be taken into our hearts, that we might apply ourselves to Jesus Christ through faith in Him. The proper and only response to hearing the glorious truths of the gospel is to respond with faith and obedience. The gospel is revealed not merely to be known, but to be practiced. We come to know Christ so that we might depend upon Him, so that we might rely only on Him, so that we might live through His strength for His glory. Jesus says in John 13, 17, If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. If you know them, you are blessed if you do them. It is a great privilege to know the truths of the gospel, especially considering how many people in the history of the world lived and died in ignorance, even how many people today live and die in ignorance, in darkness, having never heard the truths of the gospel. And yet here we are. We all have Bibles. We all have heard many sermons. We all have heard the gospel explained to us in many ways and in many times over the course of our lives. And this is a great privilege for us, to be acquainted with the truths of the gospel, to be taught the gospel. Even some of us from our childhood, from our infancy, we have been acquainted with the sacred writings. But the blessed state is not merely knowing these things. The blessed state is found in obeying its message. This is what Jesus says. If you know them, you're blessed only if you do them, right? Only if you obey them. We must believe and we must obey the word of the gospel. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. 
Jesus here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he teaches as well, and this truth would be for all of the scriptures. Matthew 7, 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that, rock, that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. There it is the wise man who hears the words and acts on them. And it is the fool who hears the word and does not act upon them. Well, do we want to be wise or do we want to be fools? Well, hopefully we want to be wise. We want to be blessed. Well, we are blessed if we do them. We are blessed if we obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Also, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. says, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him, and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, and has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Right? We have to learn Christ in the right way. We have to hear him and be taught by him in the inner being, right? In the inner man, in the heart. We must hear the word. We must study the word. We must learn the word, right? To hear, to learn, and to study. These are good disciplines for us to incorporate into our life, but they must serve a greater purpose. They are not ends in themselves, but are properly discharged when they result in practice. The truths of the gospel are like medicines for the sin-sick soul. What good is it to have medicine, to have a cabinet filled with medicine, filled with the very remedy for what ails you if you do not ingest it, right? If you do not take the medicine, then the medicine is of no value. It must be applied to the sickness. And so what good is it to hear the word of God, to have some understanding of the truths of the gospel, if these truths are not applied to our life, if the medicine of the gospel is not applied to the sickness of sin that rests in the soul, these truths must be practiced. They must be taken into our hearts so that they can have their working and their effect upon our very lives. This is why in Colossians 3.16 it says, let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. Right? Dwell within you where? 
in your heart. You have to have it in your heart. Not that we shouldn't have it in our head. Of course we should have it in our head. But the goal is to get it into the heart. We must let it dwell within us richly in this way. Also, in James chapter 1, James chapter 1, verses 19 to 25. James 1, 19 says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. That's the same as Jesus said in John 13, 17. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So it says here as well, not merely a hearer of the word, but also an ineffectual doer of the word. This is the man who is blessed. When any truth from God's word comes to our attention, we must ask ourselves, what is its significance? What is the significance for, of, this, of this word, of the truth that I have been informed of? How does this truth inform my faith and my practice? What must I believe and what must I do in light of the word of God? It cannot simply be stored in our mind, in our journals, in our notes, in our books. It must be taken into the heart so that it can have its perfect work upon our soul. This is what he begins with, a solemn charge, a reminder of what he has said and the need to be attentive to the word of the cross. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, he now addresses them. And the way that he addresses them stresses the importance of their taking serious the person and work of Christ. Notice how he addresses them. He calls them holy brethren, holy brethren. He's not addressing the unbelieving world. He's not talking to pagans. He's not talking to idolaters. He's not talking to unholy people, but rather he's talking to the holy brethren. Brethren because they belong to one family, because they all have the same father, right? And he means this not in the natural sense. He doesn't mean it in the national sense. He means it in the spiritual sense of the word, because he is addressing the church of Jesus Christ those who are believers, those who call upon God as their father. And because God is their father, then they are all brothers, they are all children of the same household. And this is who he is addressing in Matthew 23, verse 8. Matthew 23, verse 8 to 12, says this, Matthew 23, 8. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be 
exalted. There, you have one teacher, he says, and you're all brothers. And you have one father. And where is our father? He says he is in heaven. He is in heaven. And we have to ask, how is it that God has become our father? Only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because of our elder brother, who has come down out of heaven, took on our human flesh, lived a perfect life for us, died on the cross for our sins, and was raised for our justification. It is by his work that we have been adopted into the very family of God. Only through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has this come about. This according to Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians chapter 4, it teaches us that our adoption into the family of God is owing to Jesus Christ. Galatians 4, 1 to 7. Galatians 4 verse 1 says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of this world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Right? We call God our father because we are sons. And we are sons because we have been adopted into the family of God. And the only way that we can be adopted is through redemption. And who is the basis of our redemption? Jesus Christ. God sent forth his son, born of a woman. He had to become a man. Born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. And since then, we are adopted into the family of God. Since then, we are sons of God. Since we are brothers in God's household, in seeing that all of this has come about because of the person and work of our elder brother, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then shouldn't we be thinking about these things? Shouldn't we be thinking about Him? Shouldn't we consider how wonderful Christ is to us? We are brothers. We are sons in God's household because of Him. We have been born again. Right, Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but we have been born of God. And all of this has come about for us through the death of Jesus Christ. We are brothers in the household of God. But not only does he call them brothers here, he says they are holy brothers. They are holy. And how could it be any other way? Is God's household a household of sin? Is it a household of unrighteousness? No, it, of course not. God's household is a household of holiness and of righteousness. And since the very basis of our salvation, since our inclusion into the household of God is owing to the Holy Son of God, the Holy and Righteous One of God, who sanctifies us from all ungodliness, then how could it be any other way? We are holy brothers because we are hidden in Christ and we become partakers of his holiness. We share in his righteousness. It says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians 2.20 Christ lives in me. And how does Christ live within us? Through his Holy Spirit, who dwells within our hearts. Well, will the Holy Spirit not have its effect in our life? Will he not make us into holy people? He makes us holy by washing us with his precious blood, by accounting his holy life to us. He takes away our sins, which is the basis of our unrighteousness, and then he gives us his spirit who cleanses us, who sanctifies us, who purifies us. He does this in two ways. Positionally, we are holy in our standing before God. We are holy on the basis of Jesus Christ. Because of his work, God accounts us as holy children. It says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Sanctification, which is the making of someone holy. To, be make, to make us holy comes to us from Christ. He is for us all of these things. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So in terms of our standing before God, we are holy brethren because of the work of Christ, because of what he has done for us. But also our holiness is practical as well in our daily living. Now, in this way, we are holy in part. We're not perfectly holy. We're not completely holy yet. But we are being sanctified or made holy by the Spirit through the course of our life. He is purifying us. He is purging us. He is cleansing us of all unrighteousness. Now, one day, what we are positionally and what we are practically will be in complete, perfect harmony with one another. We will be perfectly holy in every regard and in every aspect someday. Yet, even now, we can still be addressed as holy brethren. We can say this of one another in truth because this is who we are in Christ. This is what we are in terms of the way that we want to live in our daily life. And it is being manifested in us through the Holy Spirit day by day. And this is what we will be when we see him face to face. So if we are holy brethren, then shouldn't we think about holy things? Shouldn't our mind be fixed on that which is holy? Shouldn't we meditate upon things that are righteous and true and holy? It says in Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. It says, "Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. There he tells the brethren again that their mind ought to be fixed upon these kinds of things. They ought to be thinking about dwelling upon, meditating on these things. Well, what subject, what object, right? what person, could be a more fitting article of our thoughts and meditations 
than Jesus Christ. Who is the embodiment of truth? Who is honorable above all? Who is altogether righteous and pure? What in this world is more lovely than Jesus Christ? Who is of greater repute than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? He is more excellent than anyone or anything on this earth. He and he alone is worthy of praise. So who is then the fitting object for holy brethren to dwell upon? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Holy brethren should have their thoughts occupied with their Holy Father. And this we do by meditating upon His Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Because we come to know the true God through Jesus Christ, whom He has sent. We come to know the God of holiness through His Holy Son, Jesus Christ. We should be thinking about Him because we are holy brethren. Next, notice in verse 1 how He also describes them as partakers of a heavenly calling. These holy brethren, and really indeed all of those who are children of God. Isn't it a great privilege to be called a child of God? It is a right and a privilege that he has given to us that we should be called children of God. A very honorable title for us to have and to be called by this name. But how did this come about? How did we become children of God? How did they become holy brethren of God? Was it by their own nature? Was it by their heritage? Was it by their own will? Was it by their own works? Well, we know that this isn't the case. By nature, we're not holy brethren, but we're unholy enemies, unholy rebels, insurrectionists against God. But now... They are holy brethren of God. They are possessors of salvation. How have they obtained their standing before God and the many rights and privileges associated with salvation? And it is because of the heavenly call. They are partakers of a heavenly calling. And so are we if we call God our Father. We are called by God out of darkness into light. We are called by God out of death and into life. And this call did not originate on the earth. It did not come out of our own minds. It did not come out of our own will. It did not originate from any man or anyone on this earth. But the call that results in salvation, it originates in heaven with God. It comes from Him. God is the ultimate source of our calling into salvation. It comes from no one else, only from God alone. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45. Maceo and I were talking about this passage this this morning. John chapter 6, 44 and 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. No one can come to the Father. No one can come to the Son 
unless the Father who sent the Son draws him. And draw here is the same as call in our verse, a heavenly call. And that is the drawing, the calling that results in salvation. It leads to and results in salvation in this person being saved and lifted up and raised up on the last day. A man does not call himself to salvation, but must be called by God. Just as Lazarus did not call himself to come out of the grave, but he was called by Christ to come out of the grave, and then on the basis of the call of Christ, he was made alive, and then he came forth from the grave. And so it is with our salvation. From start to finish, it is based upon the will of God, based upon the gracious calling of God. This is the way our salvation is from start to finish. It says in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30, every aspect of salvation is ascribed unto God. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would become the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, uh, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Their predestination, calling, justification, glorification. These are the tenets of salvation. From start to finish, all of them are ascribed to who? All of them ascribed to God alone. They are partakers of a heavenly calling. First, because God is the source of the call. But also, it is a heavenly calling because of the means that God uses to bring it about. And what are the means that God uses to bring about the call unto salvation? Well, God calls us to Himself by means of the Spirit and the Word. The Spirit and the Word always used in tandem together to bring someone out of darkness and into light. Without the preaching of the Word of God and without the work of the Spirit upon the heart, no man can come into salvation. The Word and Spirit are necessary. They are essential for the calling of a man. And where do both originate from? Where does the Word and Spirit, where do they come from? Do they originate on earth? Or do they come from heaven? And they both come out of heaven. In, G in Luke 3.22, it says there, in Jesus' baptism, that this, the Spirit descended on Christ like a dove. And where did the Spirit descend from? He descended out of heaven. And while, of course, our hearing of the Word of God, in terms of when we hear it, as you are today, we are on earth. The messenger that is speaking to you is of the earth. But the Word that we are consulting, the Word that we are reading, the Word that we are explaining, where did this Word come from? Did it come from earth? Is it the result of the imagination, of the wisdom, of the craftiness of men who are born of earth? Or did this word come from God out of heaven and was delivered to men who then dispersed it and published it here in this world? 
Well, in Hebrews 12.25, it's called the voice of one speaking from heaven. The word of God is the voice of one who is speaking from heaven. And who is that one speaking from heaven? But God himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, it is a heavenly calling because it first originates in heaven from God. We are partakers of a heavenly calling because the means used by God to accomplish this is the Word and Spirit. But also, it is a heavenly calling because what is the end goal of our calling? Is that we would be in heaven with God for all eternity. That's where our salvation ends. Our salvation ends when the dwelling of God is with men. When we are in the presence of God, beholding God for all eternity. When we are there in heaven with Him, worshiping Him and seeing His beauty. So everything about our salvation, everything about our calling is heavenly. And what is there in a man's life that is more important than being called by God? It's the single most important thing in our life. Because it doesn't matter what we have in terms of honor, glory, in terms of riches and wealth in this world, if we have not been called by God and we die, we will spend all eternity in hell. And what is a profit of man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? So the most consequential thing in our life, in terms of our eternal blessedness, it is our calling. The most important thing that will ever happen to any of us is that we become partakers of the heavenly calling to become a member of the family of God through Jesus Christ. Well, if this calling that is so important to us is a heavenly calling, then shouldn't our thoughts be heavenly? Shouldn't we be thinking and be heavenly-minded people? Shouldn't our thoughts, our time, our energy, our focus be preoccupied with the things of heaven, right? Not the things of this world, but we ought to have heaven on our minds. This is what should be at the forefront in what we're doing day by day by day. We should be thinking about heaven. And who is in heaven right now? How do we, be, how do we become heavenly minded in our thoughts? Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Again, we notice how in all of the Scripture, everything is focused on Jesus Christ. Everything goes back to Christ. This is the way we accomplish all of these things. Colossians 3, 1-4. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Christ is in heaven. Christ is at the right hand of God. Christ is everything to us. And if we're going to be heavenly-minded people, then we need to be thinking often about Jesus Christ. We will be heavenly-minded when we are meditating upon His person and His work. This is how we seek things that are above. We seek Christ in His Word. And this should be our goal. 
because of the many great privileges that have been granted to us in Christ. We are brethren in God's household. We are holy people. We are partakers of a heavenly calling. Those who are described in such a way, right, with such terms of endearment, they ought to have heavenly things on their mind. And who is more heavenly than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And this is why he says next in chapter 3, verse 1, because these things are true, because they are holy brethren, because they are partakers of a heavenly calling, then he says, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. We must consider Jesus. We must consider who he is and what he has done for us. This is the chief exhortation of this passage. This is the chief exhortation of the entire book of Hebrews. is for us to consider who Jesus Christ is. Because they are being tempted to forsake Christ, to depart from Christ, and to go back to the old covenant and an understanding of the old covenant apart from Jesus Christ, which is a corrupted understanding of it. That is what they are being tempted to do. And he's telling them that you cannot do this. He's urging them to consider Jesus Christ, who is the apostle and high priest of our confession. His greatness, his glory, his excellence, his preeminence over all things. They have not sufficiently weighed and pondered the nature and quality of the person of Jesus Christ. And this is why they are being tempted to part from Christ and to return back to Judaism. But have they considered carefully who Jesus is? Have we considered carefully who Jesus is? The spiritual mysteries of the gospel, again, especially those mysteries relating to the person of Christ, the offices of Christ, the work of Christ, these mysteries require diligent, careful, deep, consideration. We will never exhaust the end of these mysteries. We will never exhaust the wisdom that is hidden in the person of Jesus Christ. But we must always be considering, be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2. And this is the problem that you often find. People are not content with Christ. They want to move on to greater things, to deeper things, which are none other than the deep things of Satan. But we should not have this attitude. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. It says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are in Laodicea, and for all of those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He wants the church to have a true understanding, a true knowledge of the mystery of God. And who, according to this passage, is the mystery of God? 
Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. And in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Hidden in Christ are these treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he says, all of the treasure of wisdom and knowledge is hidden in Christ. There is no wisdom that exists outside of Jesus Christ. There is no knowledge as pertaining to salvation outside of the person of Jesus Christ. If we are going to know the true God and know the will of God and know how to live a life pleasing to God, all of this comes to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And these treasures of wisdom and knowledge, they can never be exhausted. A lifetime of diligent consideration will never bring us to the end of the wisdom and knowledge of God hidden in the person of Jesus Christ. It says, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Job 11 Seven to nine. Can we discover the depths of God? And these depths are found in the person of Christ. This is why in Proverbs 2 4, we're told to seek wisdom as silver and to search for her as hidden treasure. We seek this wisdom in the person of Christ. And it says in 1 Peter 1 10 to 12 that the holy prophets of old. They made careful search and inquiry into the person of Christ. Into the person of Christ. Seeking to know the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. And this is what is so often lacking. It's so often lacking in much of Christianity and even in our own lives. Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We are not making careful search and inquiry. We are not diligently considering Jesus Christ. We are not searching for him as silver and as hidden treasure. We're not seeking to grow in the understanding of his person, of his offices, and of his work. Many people are content with a cursory knowledge of the gospel. They grow weary of hearing of Jesus Christ in him crucified. They want to move on to new topics. We already know about Christ, right? We already know salvation. We already know the gospel. We've been reconciled to God. So let's move on and let's talk about something else. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Can God make a rock too big for him to pick up? What was God doing before he created the world? These are the kinds of useless things people like to sit around and talk about, right? They like to sit around and talk about these types of worthless topics. But Titus 3.9 tells us to avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. People love to be preoccupied with worthless things, with these types of arguments, disputes, and debates. Instead of focusing on what is unprofitable and worthless, we should focus on what is profitable and worthy. And what is worthy of our time and attention? Jesus Christ. We should be thinking about Christ. We should be considering and talking about Christ. 
He's not worthless. He's not unprofitable. He is of great value to our souls. And the more that we dig, the more that we learn of him, the more that we're going to desire him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, if you taste and see that he's good through Christ, aren't you going to want more? You're going to want more and more and more and more. So it is not a sign of maturity that someone wants to move on beyond Christ, that someone wants to talk about something other than Christ. It is actually a sign of foolishness. It is a sign of maturity when a person wants more and more of Christ, to understand more of his person, his work, his life, and how it applies to us. We should diligently consider Jesus. Now, here, what should we consider? According to our passage in Hebrews 3.1. Namely, he says, he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus Christ is the apostle of our confession. This is the one place in scripture where Jesus is referred to as the apostle of our confession. He is not an apostle. He is the apostle of our faith, meaning he is the one who has uniquely been sent by the Father as his ambassador, as his spokesman. Spokesman. He is the one sent by the Father to reveal God to mankind. The Father sent the Son. Not that the Father did not send the prophets of old. He sent them, but not in this fashion. Right? They came and they spoke the word of God that God revealed to them. Jesus is the word of God. He is the word of God personified in human flesh. And in his person, in his life, God reveals himself to us. He is the one sent by God in order that we might come to a true knowledge of the living God. The Father sending the Son. We cannot come to know the true God by our own intellect by our own study, by our own impressions and thoughts about God, by forming a committee or some group of people and all of us getting together and pontificating about who we think God is. We will never come to a true knowledge of God in this way. The only way we can come to know the true God is by seeing him in the person of Jesus Christ. The Father sent the Son to reveal himself to mankind. He was sent for this express purpose by God. Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 16. Isaiah 48, 16 says, Come near to me. Listen to this. From the first I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Who was there at the beginning when God created the world? Before God created the world? When all those things took place? I was there, he says. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. God the Father has sent me, God the Son, and his spirit, because Jesus had the spirit without measure. And they came and revealed God to us. The secret things of God have been revealed to us in the person of Christ. Also, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. 
Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Here again, we have another example. Because people will say that no one in the Old Testament knew about the Trinity. That the Trinity wasn't taught in the Old Testament. The Trinity is taught in this one verse. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. There's three persons right there. The spirit, the Lord God, and me. And who is the me? But our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the verse he quotes in Luke chapter 4. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. There, the Father, God, the Lord God, has sent me. He was sent by God. Sent by God. Now, that he was sent by God reveals to us two things. First, the authority of Jesus Christ. He received his charge from God the Father. He is sent in this unique way by God the Father, who is the supreme, ultimate authority over all things. So he is speaking with the authority of God the Father. And then secondly, the nature of his work. He was sent to reveal and declare the will of God to men, to declare to us the Father himself. It says in John 1.18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. No man has ever seen God the Father. So how do we come to know God the Father? Who interprets him for us? Who explains him to us? Jesus Christ, the only begotten God. The Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He reveals the Father to us. We remember Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1 says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the Father's glory. He, Jesus, is the exact representation of his nature. So if we want to know God, if we want to see the Father then we need to look no further than the Son. This is as Jesus said in John 14 when Philip asked, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says, do you not understand that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father? In the Son, God has spoken with clarity and with finality. What Jesus reveals to us about God the Father is true, it is authoritative, it is the ultimate and final word of God. And he was sent for this purpose, to declare the mind of God to us, to declare the will of God to us, to teach us how to worship God properly, to teach us how to be reconciled to God, to teach us how to live a life pleasing to him. And he has come in the name of the Father and with the authority of the Father. And we can trust his word. 
we can have confidence that what Jesus says to us, what he reveals to us in his word about God the Father is true, right? It is accurate. It will never lead us astray. And this is because Jesus is the apostle of God who speaks on behalf of God to us. It says in John 12, 49, For I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I don't speak on my own initiative, but I speak only what the Father tells me to speak. Perfect harmony, perfect agreement between the Father and the Son. Also here, he is not only the apostle of our confession, he's also called the high priest of our confession. Jesus is the true high priest of God. He is the one over the household of faith who offers sacrifice for the sins of God's people. He is the one who intercedes with God on our behalf. Now, in the Old Covenant, these offices were separated unto various individuals. Right at the founding of the Jewish church, Moses was the apostle. He was the prophet of God who revealed the will of God to the people. Moses was the one who established the worship of God. God instructed Moses, and then Moses taught the people and led them and instructed them in what it is that they were to do. Moses did not invent the tabernacle out of his own mind. He did not invent the high priesthood, the sacrificial system, the altar, any of the items or adornment that accompanied the worship of God in the Old Covenant. These things were revealed to Moses by God. And in that way, Moses was sent by God the Father to establish his worship there among the children of Israel. And he did so faithfully, and we'll deal with that in the rest of this chapter. Then Aaron was the high priest. He was the one who actually administered the holy things in the worship of God. Moses was not the one who put on the garb of the high priest, who went in and offered sacrifices for the people. Moses established it. God instructed Moses, and Moses put it together. But then in terms of administering the sacrifices and in doing the rituals, this was upon Aaron. He was the one who administered the worship of God there in the very beginning. Moses, the apostle, Aaron, the high priest. Yet for us, both of these offices are found in one person. In them, for them, it was scattered abroad through many persons and in many various types. But for us, all of these are found in one person, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't this true of all of the worship of the Old Covenant? The true prophet of God? that was symbolized in the person of Moses, according to Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The true high priest of God, who was symbolized there in the person of Aaron, is found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then later, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, the king of God, the one who would be over his people, that was symbolized in the household of David, finds its fulfillment in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The tabernacle of God, is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? The altar of God, the sacrifices of God, the bread of presence, right? The incense, all of these things, the, the lampstand, all of the adornment, all of the symbols there in the temple and the tabernacle, all of the symbols in the sacrifices that they offer to God, 
all of these find their fulfillment in one person, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. And does not this display his preeminence? His preeminence over Moses and his preeminence over Aaron. The office of apostle, which was committed to Moses, the office of high priest, which was committed to Aaron, are both fulfilled in one person, Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus reproves the Jews of his own day. In John 5.39, he tells them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet it is these that testify of me. They testify of Christ. For all of the scripture finds its completion, has its yes and its amen in Christ. The ministry of both Moses and Aaron were testifying of the coming ministry of Jesus Christ. His greater person and his greater ministry. So if Moses and Aaron are pointing us to Christ, then why would we abandon Christ to go back to Moses and Aaron without Christ? There's no way that they would ever teach or instruct us to do these things. Why would we abandon Christ and his worship and go back to a corrupted understanding of the Old Testament scripture? A corrupted understanding. Not a true understanding. The Jews, the unbelieving Jews of Jesus' day did not rightly interpret the Old Testament scriptures. Even the unbelieving Jews today do not rightly interpret their own scriptures. They have a corrupted A veil is over their heart and their minds because they do not see in the Old Testament the person and work of Jesus Christ. Moses and Aaron, they knew, they knew and understood that the worship that God was establishing for Israel through them, that it was temporary. That in the fullness of time, the true apostle of God would arise. The true high priest of God would come. And that he is the one that they should look to. And that when he arose, various aspects of the worship that God established through them, these things would be set aside. And Aaron would have been happy to set aside his high priestly garb and sit at the feet of Christ. This is what he longed for. This is what Moses longed for. Moses would be happy to not be at the head of the people, but to sit with the rest of them and hear of Christ to sit at the feet of Christ. Well, if Moses and Aaron would do so, then what should we do? Shouldn't we want to sit at the feet of Christ? We should never forsake Christ for any other way of salvation. He and he alone is the apostle of God who can reveal God to us. He and he alone is the high priest of God who can make atonement for our sins. And this is why Jesus is called the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Our confession. Our confession is the verbal expression of our faith. And who is the object of our faith? Jesus Christ. I believe, therefore I speak. I believe that Jesus is the apostle and high priest of God. And this is what I confess. This is what I profess to know and to be true, and I am putting my hope and my faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That is the faith that we as Christians profess. 
the religion that we own is founded upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is why the Lord Jesus was and is and always will be the apostle of our confession because he and he alone has revealed the will of God to us. And he was and always will be for us the high priest of our confession because he is the one who has made sacrifice for our sins, who has taken our sins away and continues to perform the ministry of high priest for us. And everything we need for life and godliness is found in him alone. We need no other source of life. We need no other source of wisdom. We need no other source of righteousness, no other source of grace or mercy, no other sacrifice for sins, no other mediator between God and us. Everything we need for salvation is found in the one person, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is what we must believe. This is how we must esteem his person. Many people have thoughts and opinions about Jesus Christ. Many people consider him to be a spiritual teacher, to be an advisor, a good man, some prophet, a guru. Some people think that he was crazy, whatever it is. Many people have many thoughts, even all of the false religions. They all have thoughts and opinions about Jesus Christ. But whatever he may be to others, for us, he must be the apostle and high priest of our confession. The only one who reveals the will of God to us and the only one by which we can have our sins forgiven. This is who he is for us. He must be so in order for us to have the forgiveness of sins. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. That's what we should be doing. Let us boast in the Lord that we have come to know the true and living God through his son, Jesus Christ. And let us not put our hope or confidence in anything else, nothing that comes from us, nothing that comes from any other man, and let's not listen to any other voice, only the voice of Christ found in his holy word. He is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we come to you today. Lord, coming to you, not as your enemies, Lord, not as rebels, not as those, Lord, who hate you and who despise you. But Lord, we come to you today crying out to you as our Father and that we are your children. Lord, that we are brethren in the household of God. And Father, we know that these things have come to us not because of anything that you saw within us, Lord, not because of any act of righteousness that we have performed, Lord, not because we are wiser than others or that we exercise or use our free will when others did not. Lord, everything that we have has come to us as a gift from you because you have called us out of darkness and into light. And Lord, had you not called us, Lord, we would still be there dead in our sins. We would still be living just like the rest of the world, living in futility, Lord, depraved in our mind. Lord, wasting our ways, wasting away our days in sin. But Lord, now you have called us. Lord, you have brought us out of darkness and into light. 
Lord, you have made us partakers of this heavenly calling. And Lord, we come to you today crying out to you as our Father. And Lord, we give to you thanks and praise. Lord, we thank you for sending your Son to be the Apostle and the High Priest of our confession. Lord, we see that we could have never come to know you, the true God, on our own. Lord, we would have, Lord, squandered our life away, serving and worshiping idols. Lord, that in no way could depict or represent who you are. Lord, in no way can the idols of men accurately represent the invisible God. Lord, only your Son can teach us who you are. Only he can reveal you to us. And we thank you, Father, that you have sent him. And we thank you, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you descended from heaven and that you came and took on human flesh in order to be our apostle. Lord, in order to reveal the Father to us. As well, we thank you, Father, that he is our high priest who is over the household of God, that we have such a faithful high priest who is our elder brother, who loves us and who cares for us, who has made a sacrifice for sins, who has shed his own blood for our benefit, and who now lives to intercede for us, and who is a perfect mediator between you and us. We thank you, Lord, for what he has done and for your love in sending him to be a benefit to us. Lord, may we never grow weary of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But Lord, may this be on our thoughts and in our mind. Lord, may we be meditating upon these truths, Lord, all of our days. Lord, knowing that in Him are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And no matter how much we may think and meditate on these glorious doctrines, Lord, upon your Son and his work, Lord, we will never exhaust the wisdom and knowledge, Lord, the greatness that is found in your Son. So, Lord, teach us, and we pray that we grow continually in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may we cling to him, Lord, and may we consider who he is. Lord, may we do so diligently so that we would never depart from Christ, even if it means that we must lose our life. Lord, even if it means we lose everything that we possess. Lord, even if all the world rejects us. Lord, may all that we desire is to be pleasing in your sight and to have, Lord, a portion in Jesus Christ. So, Father, may you continue to build us up in our faith, continue to make us stand firm, and, Lord, give us full assurance Lord, that if we have fled to Jesus for refuge, we will not be disappointed, but we will be raised up to eternal life. Lord, we are your people. We are holy brethren. We are partakers of a heavenly calling. And so, Lord, while we live on this earth, may we live the life of heaven even now. And, Lord, we pray that you would work within us to do that which is pleasing in your sight. And we'll give you all the praise and glory. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.